This episode of Historium is sponsored by Blueberry. Blueberry is the gold standard in podcast hosting, and that's why we use it to host all of our podcasts here on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. If you would like to get started in making your own podcast and are looking for a way to host it, or you're using another podcast hosting platform and simply want to switch, you can get one month free podcast hosting through Blueberry if you go to orbitaljigsaw.com history. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, the 2020 Summer Olympics have been postponed for the first time. Having weathered boycotts and terrorist attacks, the Olympics have been a staple of modern life each and every four years, only being canceled for the First and Second World War. But even though we have to wait a whole nother year to see the best athletes in the world compete in swimming relays or discus throws or track and field events, I figured now would be a good time to tell a story from Olympics past. One that is so wild, so absurd, and so insane that it will hopefully tide you over until Tokyo 2021. I'm Jake Barton, welcome to Historium. This is episode 64, The Marathon of Madness. In 1894, the Olympics were held in Athens, Greece, revitalizing a lapsed tradition that hadn't happened in 15 centuries. They were a huge success. Four years later, the next events were held in Paris, France in 1900. For the third Olympics, Teddy Roosevelt spoke softly but used his big stick to bring the game stateside. New York and Chicago made bids to host, but since the World's Fair was already coming to St. Louis to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the Louisiana Purchase, Teddy Roosevelt figured, why not there? So the 1904 Summer Olympics was set for St. Louis, Missouri, alongside the World's Fair. But St. Louis was no Athens or Paris. If you were an athlete from Europe, you'd have to travel to a port, then across an ocean, then hop on a train or stagecoach and travel 1,200 miles to even get to the event, which would be held in a city you probably never heard of, in essentially the American frontier. It was a tough sell. Few athletes outside the United States pledged to come, and turnout was expected to be low. Because of this, aspiring amateurs across the United States dreamed. Weightlifters and pole vaulters and swimmers and tug-of-warriors believed that they actually had a chance. They knew they weren't going to set any records, but maybe they could snag a bronze, put their small town on the map. One of those amateurs was Thomas Hicks. Hicks had grown up outside Boston, where he would run on the few paved roads in his neighborhood. As the city expanded, more and more roads were paved, making Hicks's running routes longer and longer. By 1904, he hadn't run a full marathon, but he was close, and he decided to put his hat in the Olympic ring. On August 30th, 1904, Thomas Hicks looked around at his competitors at the starting line in the stadium for the Olympic marathon. He looked over to see Frederick Lors and William Garcia from New York. They were the real deal, some of the best long-distance runners in the world. Next to them was Andrine Carvajal, who showed up last minute and was currently cutting off the ends of his trousers with a pocket knife. He was a mailman from Cuba who was late because he had lost all of his money gambling on a riverboat in New Orleans the week prior. About a dozen Greek runners were there too. They had a few missteps on their long journey from the Mediterranean and had arrived just the night before. They all looked exhausted. Next to them were two black Africans Hicks didn't recognize, stretching. The Olympic organizers had been disappointed at the lack of international competition. 
so they had gone over to the World's Fair, just next door, where people from Borneo or Africa or Indonesia would reenact colonial battles and hang out in reconstructed villages that portrayed the supposed simplicity and savagery of so-called exotic peoples, all for the bemusement of Midwestern ticket holders. The day before, race organizers went to these recreated tribal villages and said, hey, anyone want to run 26 miles tomorrow? No one did, except two native Swana Africans from the Savage Warriors exhibit. Their names were Lin Taunyane and Jan Mashiani, and they were actually English students. The pair figured it was better than pretending to whittle spears all day while tourists watched them as they ate cotton candy and those new things called hot dogs. So they agreed to run. They would be the first African participants in modern Olympic history. A few other American hopefuls just like Hicks himself rounded out the motley crew. In total, less than three dozen people showed up. Hicks did the math. With that few of entrants, he basically had a 10% chance of getting a medal simply for showing up. They were off. The pack started off from the stadium and continued on to their route through the unpaved, winding dirt roads in the Missouri countryside outside of St. Louis. Conditions were poor. Both the temperature and the humidity percentage were in the mid-90s. To make matters worse, trainers, Olympic officials, and the press followed alongside the pack of runners on horses and in early automobiles. In addition, they had to share the dirt road with pedestrian and vehicle traffic from people just going about their daily lives, many not even realizing there was a race taking place. All of this kicked up massive dust clouds that choked the lungs of the runners from the get-go. Despite these complications, Thomas Hicks was making good time. As he put the miles behind him, one by one, the runners fell away from the pack. At mile 9, Frederick Lors, the race favorite, collapsed. Hicks passed by as Lors' trainers struggled to haul him into the cab of the car. Lors' eyes had rolled back, and he looked like he was close to passing out. Hicks pressed on and was now squarely in the lead. A thought bubbled to the surface of his mind. He could win this thing. Alongside him in their rented car, his trainers grinned while urging him forward. Hicks pushed on. The two Africans, Lin Tao and Yan, were right behind. They had been making excellent time as well, staying a bit off the road to avoid the dust. But around 10 miles in, they heard barking. Behind them, a pack of feral dogs was closing in. The Olympic officials watched from their cars in bewilderment as the pack of wild dogs chased both of the African runners off course. They sprinted off into the orchards, route be damned. Meanwhile, Thomas Hicks finally arrived at the first water station, a rundown well at mile 11. After his trainers lowered the bucket and brought it up, he guzzled down the cool water, which briefly soothed his dust-caked mouth. The water station was the first, and little did he know, only water stop for the entire marathon. It turned out the race organizer, Jim Sullivan, was a kind of amateur scientist who wanted to do research on dehydration, which he believed was the secret to all athletes' success. The implications of the data were apparent, and a conclusion was drawn. Dehydration has a negative effect on marathon performance. By this point, half a dozen runners had already dropped out. Meanwhile, the Cuban postman, Carvajal, had gotten some water from the well, but his stomach was roaring. He was starving. He hadn't eaten in days because of the whole gambling away all of his money thing, so he desperately looked around for something to eat. 
Carvajal soon passed an apple orchard, appearing like a gift from God. He stumbled into the grove and began stuffing his face with apples. They were soft, overripe, maybe even slightly fermented. Soon the Cuban postman wearing cut-off trousers was fast asleep in the apple orchard. But Thomas Hicks pushed through. He was still in first. He could do this. But by mile 18, he knew he couldn't. He collapsed. His trainers helped him up whilst looking behind them to see if anyone was catching up. Hicks pleaded with his trainers to let him quit, but they refused. They looked at their exhausted runner, face completely covered in dirt, sweat beads leaving stripes down his face, and told him that they had a secret weapon. In a cup, they mixed brandy, a raw egg, and a small amount of rat poison, strychnine. In small doses, the chemical acted as a crude stimulant. The trainers assured Hicks that this sickly mixed drink would provide him with just the kick he needed to finish the final leg of the race. Hicks, desperate for anything to drink, gulped the concoction down. He nearly vomited, then staggered back onto the road. Only six more miles to go, then five, then four, then three. By this point, Hicks was in a fugue state, wide-eyed and hallucinating, his eyes stung, his tongue and nostrils covered in dust and blood. His trainers had to frequently course-correct to prevent their runner from stumbling off the path. But they had finally hit paved roads, and the stadium was in sight. The trainers now had to walk alongside Hicks to keep him from tipping over. The fatigue, the dehydration, the dust, and the rat poison made it difficult for Hicks to do anything other than lean forward and spasmatically put one leg in front of the other. But no one had passed them. Hicks was going to get gold. The three men entered the arena to roaring applause. The two trainers flanked Hicks, holding him upright and essentially carried him as his legs flailed beneath him. The trio did a painfully slow and awkward final lap in the stadium and crossed the finish line. Thomas Hicks collapsed. The trainers patted each other on the back, then went to fetch some sort of doctor. As they did, they noticed Fred Lors, the favorite to win the marathon who had collapsed at mile 9, was already on a pedestal holding a bouquet of flowers, getting his photo taken with Alice Roosevelt, the daughter of the president. The trainers were floored. There was no way Lors had beaten them. He never passed them. They fetched a doctor for Hicks, then went to complain to the Olympic officials. Despite falling asleep in an apple orchard, Carvajal woke up and continued the race. He finished fourth. The two Africans, Lintao and Jan, who had been chased miles off track by a pack of angry dogs, finished ninth and twelfth, respectively. Only 14 of the 32 participants actually finished the race, and many had to be hospitalized. William Garcia, another one of the race favorites, was found motionless on the side of a dirt road by a local farmer heading to market, his face and mouth caked with dust, blood pooling around his face. With the amount of dust in his lungs, he barely survived. Thomas Hicks himself might have died if there weren't several well-trained doctors in the stadium. He was taken into a tent for treatment. About an hour after he had finished, the first place runner, Fred Lors, was now under scrutiny. It turns out, many spectators in the stands had seen Lors riding in a car throughout the city. Hicks's trainer swore to the Olympic officials that Lors had not passed them. The jig was up. Lors came clean. 
After he had collapsed at mile 9, his trainers had driven him towards the stadium while he recovered. Once they arrived, Lors waited in the car until a reasonable enough amount of time had passed, and then ran into the stadium to thundering applause and a first place finish. When the subterfuge was revealed, Lors came clean and claimed it was all a joke. All in good fun. He was quickly disqualified and banned from competitive running for life. Hicks's trainers went over to the makeshift medical tent where their poor runner, who had lost nearly 10 pounds over the course of the horrendous race, was clearly still hallucinating. They told him he'd won gold. Historium is written and produced by me, Jake Barton, and my story editor is Thomas Harlander. Some facts that didn't make the episode, um, the next Olympics in 1908 were to be held in Rome until Mount Vesuvius erupted, filling the Olympic Stadium with lava, so the games were moved to London. Another fact that didn't make the episode, Fred Lortz, the guy who was caught cheating, uh, his reputation as a prankster probably saved him, as his ban was eventually reduced to just 12 months. And the very next year, Lors would go on to win the 1905 Boston Marathon. If you're a fan of Historium, you can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But if you truly want to help me make this show, you can support my work on Patreon. There you can see some of the pictures uh, from this hellish marathon posted on there. And if you pledge just five bucks, you'll get access to all of my bonus episodes, including last month's episode about an American plan in the late 50s to detonate a nuclear weapon on the moon. So to hear that episode and all of my other bonus episodes, it's just five bucks on Patreon. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>